Hello, good evening, and welcome to The Game is About Glory. My name is Steph, and joining me to look back on an eventful week at Tottenham Hotspur are Ricky, Awesome, and Milo. Hello, chaps. Oh, yeah. Hi, Steph. Evening, Steph. Yes, indeed. We were also going to be looking back at our game at Turf Moor earlier today. Except there wasn't a game, was there? At that proper old-school ground where the rust in the David Fishwick stand roof greets visiting supporters with genuine jumpers for goalposts warmth. And is a proper anti-prawn sandwich eater affair, but... With the game being called off today after 50 minutes before kickoff because of snow, that actually makes a bit of a mockery of that of you know this clever anti-prawn sandwich eater affair malarkey because nothing says prawn sandwich eaters more than a Premier League club unable to play a match in 2021 because of a bit of snow. So instead, we will spend a little more time talking about what went wrong on Thursday in the Proletariat Champions League. Surely it will be the nadir of Conte's era, and what can we expect he will have taken from it? We will also look at our annual accounts and the fan-led football governance review in our expanded The Week That Was. And, after all that, we're going to get festive and functional as we present The Game Is About Glory's Christmas Gift Guide. And trust me, there are some perlers for your families to buy you. Before all that, chaps, this week's intro question is, who is the most famous person that you've seen on public transport? Awesome, I'm going to go to you. Okay, it was about... 15, 20 years ago, um, I was stood in line to board a flight at Cape Town Airport. I didn't recognise the guy that we were stood next to, but my sister sure as hell did. And she's like, it's him, it's him. I'm looking at this guy thinking he does look sort of familiar. Ronan Keating. And uh, my sister was into the, the boy bands around that time. So as you stood in a queue, I thought it's only fair that I'd you know, strike up a conversation. And um, he didn't have a lot of love to give, to be honest. He complained about the fact that he'd had a hard gig in the in the stadium in Cape Town the night before. And he was basically so underwhelming that I didn't even ask him for an autograph for my sister, who was stood there shyly saying nothing. So I made a twat of myself, basically, for her. I'd say the bigger twat of yourself would have been if you'd asked him for an autograph, actually. So you managed to avoid that. Well done. Ricky, your famous encounter, please. Um, yeah, in the 90s, um, I had a girlfriend in Manchester and on a Friday evening, I used to get the old uh, rattler up to Manchester Piccadilly to see her. And this evening, I was running late as usual for the train. So um, just ahead of me were four other lads and I was like 100 yards behind them and the guard was blowing his whistle. And I thought, oh my God, I don't know if I'm going to make this. Gonna, uh, you know, I wasn't sure if I was going to get on board in time. But luckily, when the boy, these, these lads got on, one of them hanged out the wind, hung out the window and said, Hold the effing doors, hold the fucking doors, mate. <laughs> man coming on, man coming on. Come on, lad, get on the party train. And um, that um, very kind gentleman was Sean Ryder, who I then uh, uh, reluctantly but probably sensibly agreed not to venture into the buffet car with him because um, that might have been... Well, I might not have got to, got to Manchester in a pretty good state, probably. So the girlfriend would have been happy. <laughs> Twisted your mellow man over a bacon butty or so, wouldn't yeah, you? Yeah, straight into the ender probably, and never be seen again. <laughs> <laughs> there are worse things in life, Ricky. Indeed, indeed. See, worse I've things great, in life, mate. <laughs> I, I've missed a great experience there, haven't I? Yeah, thinking uh, about it. It's all good, all good. I did see Mario Melchior on my return flight from the Champions League final, but he hardly counts. That was on a plane. But the one that I am going to go for is... In the Bay Area, they have a thing called, oh, they used to have a thing. Neil Young used to have an acoustic benefit every year. And Pete Townsend was playing it, uh, you know, acoustically with The Who. I went to catch my flight to London. Pete Townsend was on the same flight. Yeah, we landed. I mean, obviously, he's in a different part of the plane to me uh, at that point. But I did have Magic Bus on and it was playing over and over because I was on. It was just I was stuck on the song. For some reason, it was like an obsession. And right as I came out of the Terminal 5 building, having, you know, gone through arrivals and so on, 
as the song crescendoed, you know, magic bus, da 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 da, magic bus. I look up, and Pete Townsend's coming across me as I'm walking to him, <laughs> and we sort of cross, like he crossed right in front of me as the riff hit the like the the fat bit, you know. And mm. I just looked, and I looked at the whole thing, and I just thought, you know, it's going to be all right, like. <laughs> it's gonna be all right and i just watched him walk away and i was like fuck me that was just amazing so that's my i mean you know i'm stretching it but it's a good one <laughs> you used to see roger daltrey around a, a little bit yeah um seen it i've seen him in the street a few times not ne- never on public transport yeah yeah the other public transport one i could have could have had was paul mccartney that was a shock brilliant where was that i was on a train first class um train back from london yeah. and um yeah macca was sat in, sat there you know what arguably one of the greatest musicians songwriters alive who would argue that yeah yeah so, so yeah, st- still getting public transport when you know you could comfortably afford a helicopter couldn't they brilliant and i did once see just to round this section because i have to throw this in i did once see <laughs> i once saw ian brown monkey man- monkey walk his way up the steps of leicester square tube and i pointed at him <laughs> and nudged my son and said that is a mancunian <laughs> for whatever anyway let's move on very good (laughs) very good indeed let's i mean well it says in our notes let's start with the week that was gentlemen let's focus on the week that was because that is tonight's pod we're going to start with our annual accounts last week we published our accounts uh covering the year to 30th of june 2021 uh the club recorded its biggest ever losses but this is against some far worse losses across Europe and we are one of the first Premier League clubs to publish our accounts so comparisons are pretty hard just to to list a couple of things here revenues down 60 million mainly due to matches behind closed doors the loss before tax is up to 80 million Uh, UEFA money is down 27 million due to lack of Champions League participation but Premier League money is up 89 million because we play 44 games instead of 32 due to the lockdown wages are up by 20 million Player purchases were 110 million. We borrowed 853 million, and we owe 170 million in transfer fees to other clubs. So I think I'm going to go, chaps, if you don't mind, to our probably our resident financial expert on these matters, Ricky. And Ricky, I'm going to ask you uh, how healthy these figures are, and what does it mean for the club spending in the short to medium term? I mean, you're saying this is Ricky's ramble, is it? In homage of the Swiss <laughs> ramble. <laughs> I don't know if I'm as good as him. He's very good. I mean, he's a bleak. I think he's a gooner, isn't he? You know, he's not. He is, he's not yeah. perfect, is he? Um, I think most of it, I think, sort of to be expected because we, you know, we're essentially a, you know, an events company, and either we've cancelled events or we've had we've had football matches with no one attending. So that's obviously going to hit um, our income. I think looking at the costs, I mean, as you say, borrowing, we're on 183 million, but that has, as we've said before, that's all been refinanced completely now, including the government COVID loan. We've bombed placements and not to bore you I think we're averaging out at 2.7% interest so and that's stretched out over 23 years so it's just like a mortgage really so I mean working on that figure that should equal 23 million quid a year in interest which is a fixed cost I can slightly rant at some of our fans on this front, only from the point of view of they keep saying that the owners are burdening us or loading the club with debt. But I mean, what I'd say to them is, what do they expect? One, do we do we save up to build a stadium? I mean, that's just never going to happen, is it? And also, if um, two, if we if we don't bother building the stadium, do they hope to be competitive by staying at the old White Hart Lane? I mean, that that's kind of unrealistic, really. All infrastructure projects do require finance, but 
the other thing is, yeah, we owe that money, but we did get something for it. I mean, we've got an absolutely brilliant stadium that will come and that will feed us and underpin us for like at least 80 years. There's no need for us to pay that debt down. It's the fixed cost at 23 million. That is the burden, not the debt. With the rates that we've got, and even at the moment with something like inflation running at 4.2%, there is no motivation at all to pay that debt down. And I think that suits Levy, because the other thing it's done now is it's carried that into a fixed cost. So he knows exactly. There's no kind of variations going on now. He knows that is our interest cost. That's our debt cost. Mm-hmm. We just pay that every year, every year. And of course, over 23 years, that, 20, that 23 million per year is going to look less and less every year. It's not going to be a burden at all. And I mean, to relate it to something the other people are going, I mean, really a good a good stadium sponsorship deal will pay that and probably cover that. Another slightly interesting part, I think I read somewhere that in the time we built our stadium, United, for example, have spent that on transfers, I think, what we've spent on our stadium. And they're no, you know, I mean, obviously they've got bigger income in the first place, but they're no further ahead than us from spending that money, to be honest. Gracious, is that actually true? They've spent the same in players that we spent at the stadium. Yeah. And, haven't, and, and as I say, they've not really progressed any further. I mean, obviously, that could just be around a bit like us at the moment, really. That could be down to managerial appointments, can't it? I mean, not being mm. good enough kind of thing. Wages have risen by 21 million, but I think in next year's account, they would have fallen a bit because we've got a load of people off the wage bill. And what that will help us with probably is um, give us a bit of a headroom for when we want to go into the market next in, the, in January and in the summer. And the interest costs actually were 37 million last year, but I can see that falling as well since we've refinanced. So that might fall by 10 million because I think some of our interest costs have included finance charges and arrangement fees where we've obviously had to restructure to the debt and I can tell you from finance firms point of view they're up there with kind of Georgie, Men- Georgie Menges for fees and all that kind of thing they like to charge but um, income wise match day was 2 million that's paltry um, but that should likely rise back to one they, they think about 120 million with a full season there's more uplift possible with corporate events and commercial I think and we've had the training kit sponsorship the sleeve sponsorships come in we've, as I said before we've got the stadium stuff to hopefully come along as well um, the big variables really are um, as you said compete what depends what European competition we're in we get money from that and we get extra TV money from that and um, uh, transfers is the other thing which I think we're going to talk about in a minute I would just say as well though that although we've got the 853 debt at the time of these accounts we had a £147 in cash on hand. So that's a reasonably healthy position. And I don't think, as I say, all in all, it doesn't look that bad considering. Just to verify, that's £853 million in debt. And how much do you say we have in, in, in hand? £147 million in cash. There we go. I just think it's important to add the million because someone somewhere is going to think, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my other question to you just before we wrap this section up is, should we be worried, Ricky, about the £170 million we owe to other clubs for transfers? Well, I think I did I did allude to that before when we were sort of buying for um, uh, Nuno, that we were kind of kicking this kind of thing down the road. And we owe, as you said, we owe £170 million transfer payments to other clubs, which allegedly is the highest in the Premier League. So obviously, you know, mm. we're not privy to whom... We owe that to in the schedule, but nonetheless, we do owe it. I mean, as I say, we've been kicking that can down the road while still wanting to be active in the market. And that's kind of reasoned out, I think, as an okay strategy, probably for two things, in my opinion. We've either, we either think that further down the road, the gravy is coming, you know, the money is coming, so that's okay. Or alternatively, I think, 
we've maybe factored in that Harry will be going and we will get a large fee for him. And that will, to use Boris's favourite phrase, that, that might help with a certain period of levelling up. I suppose you're going to ask me, I suppose it's beg the question, is this a hindrance to Conte and his plans? But I think the straight answer to that is it can't be. I don't think we've gone back to Conte and asked him to take the pain away without him and us being very clear on what our vision is. But practically low, I think... I think what would help, some of the players he's obviously going to reject, I think they are actually worth something. You know, Delhi or Sanchez as examples. And as I said, I think Champion League is another route to, to more income. That's another place where we can get more income from. And I think it's worth chasing that by backing Conti as, as we are, to a certain degree, underpinned by other income if we now fail. As long, I was jokingly going to say this, I was going to add this, and jokingly saying, as long as we don't have any kind of headwinds that knock us off track again, like a, a new bad variant of COVID. <laughs> but that's not such a jokey comment, I don't think, at the moment. So, yeah. And the, the other side, no, we're, only, we're only owed £19 million. I think that's reflective of us letting players go for next to nothing, which not long ago we thought would have been worth something. Mm. Yeah, I think it's 20 million we're owed. Uh, but I, th- I think mm. a fair chunk of that is from Inter for Ericsson, which might come in handy for January if that was a mm. club that we might be going back to for players. But we're, we're, um, we're, we're also well off that compared to the other top five when it comes to profit yeah. transfers. And I think that might be why we've heard, the re- we've heard the reports this week about restructuring the scouting network, restructuring all the loan system and all that kind of thing. Because I think, once again, that's another thing where maybe we've taken our eye off the ball and Levy thinks that's another income stream there. One thing to add to this as well is that uh, you know we, we really don't know what events are going to be taking place next year, but we certainly know the couple that were postponed and rescheduled. I mean, the Guns N' Roses tonight uh, uh, is still on the cards, supposedly, for, for, for next summer. You know, And if there's, what, four or five other gigs that take place in, mm. in 2022 already you're you know that wonderful swiss army knife for stadium we have continues to to pay for, you know really start paying for itself so you know that that's a whole other factor i think to these financial reports that we have never had before uh, and it is a tantalizing prospect but as you said ricky it does rely on you know things continuing on the up in terms of being able to stage things freely let's just leave it there uh thanks ricky it's uh, always good to get a balanced view. And uh, yes, I think that, you know, there are still variables to account for in 2022. Overall, I think we're trundling along just as you might have expected in a COVID era. There was also the Football Fan Led Governance Review published on Wednesday by the UK government has been actually broadly well received. And I, you know, even to this cynical uh, narrator, I would say that the proposals look, you know, they look good to me on paper. A few highlights. A transfer levy on Premier League deals with the money redistributed to lower leagues. A golden share held by supporters that could veto some changes at a club, such as changing the name or moving ground. Shadow boards made up of fans who, you know, must be consulted by clubs on key decisions. Limits on the amount of money owners can put into a club set according to the club's existing finances. There's a few others here. I'm just going to say compulsory relegation and promotion clauses in player contracts. Compulsory equality diversity and inclusion plans for every club and trials to allow the consumption of alcohol while watching a match as well as a review into the future of the women's game the trust have issued a statement welcoming the report and proposals Uh, and i suppose the key now is for the government you know what are the government going to do with this the trust are encouraging fans to write to their mp saying they support the review findings and asking for parliamentary time to be allocated to it and you know this pod would also encourage uk-based fans to do so But, Milo, what do you think of the proposals and how easy are they going to be to implement? 
So, I mean, I was pretty sceptical about this review and didn't have high expectations for the report, and I, I was wrong. I think um, the recommendations are, are pretty good. Um, the government issued a statement at the end of last week saying that it was going to um, try and prioritise uh, implementation of this. But what we're already seeing is a bit of a fight back from the Premier League and Premier League chairman, so notably led by Aston Villa's uh, chief exec, Christian Perslow. And I think what the Premier... You know, this is something that has broadly welcomed by pretty much all fan groups and not being very well received by Premier League chairman, um, which probably suggests that it's a pretty good report. And I think what the Premier League are going to try and do is they're going to try and play for time and they're going to try and get the recommendations watered down, which is why I think the trust are right to encourage fans to write to MPs to encourage to say that you support this and that you want the government to commit legislation and time for legislation for this. I just endorse what they were saying really. I think the longer the delay is the the, the greater chance there is that this will be watered down and that the you know what's broadly very sensible proposals you know won't be enacted. The easiest way of doing that is to write to your MP and tell them that you support it. So essentially it is in your opinion at a place where the foundations are there for a really good uh, few steps forward but now it's up to the public and the protesting public if you will to put their money where their mouths are and start really putting pressure on MPs because there is something to actually get applied. Yeah yeah absolutely I mean I think um you know, the Premier League are going to get their lobbyists onto this. They're going to try and, um, you know, influence this. And we've got to try and get in first and get into our MPs' ear and say, we support this and they should do it and they should commit time to it. And I think, you know, one thing that we ought to be looking here, I mean, it's been, it's been welcomed by all, you know, this isn't a party political issue. It's been welcomed by all parties so far. Um, a lot of the recommendations here were in the Labour manifesto at the last election. So if you've got a Labour MP, write to them and remind them of that and tell them to vote for it because it, you know, it was their policy. The, the MP who's led this is a Conservative MP. So, yeah, hopefully, hopefully that puts it in good stead. But I think we've just got to, we've got to move quickly on this because, yeah, I, I think it, it, there will be a heavy lobbying uh, operation to try and undermine it. Of course, you know, with these things, we, we will soon find out how serviceable they are in application. And as you said, you know, it's, it, it very much is a case of people have to put the pressure on. I'm wondering if some of this was written to, you know, to fire the first shot across the bow so as, you know, the draftees look good in doing so. Um, having said that... I don't think so. It's a comprehensive review. Um, they've listened to people. I don't think it's that at all. Good. Uh, and that being said, is there anything there in those listings, uh, before we round this point off, that you think is unserviceable, like impractical in terms of going from zero to 60 as opposed to possibly going from zero to 30, you know, a, a maybe a, a step too far as opposed to the baby steps that may be, you know, applicable now? No, I don't think so. And I don't think baby steps are what's needed now. Um, you know, the people who are going to try and block this are the people who've made, who've given us a, you know, a massively uh, uncompetitive league, you know, where, where people can buy their way in and buy their way to the top of it. These proposals will make the league more equal, more competitive, improve the, um, improve things for fans. And, you know, a, 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 for a club like us, this, this is really good because we're run well. You know, we, we ought to be a model that other clubs are following. You know, there's restrictions here about how much money can be put into a club by, by chairman, by people who buy them. You know, there's strengthened fit and proper tests run by an independent regulator rather than the clubs themselves. All of these things are things we should welcome because they'll do Tottenham very well. But that's not the, you know, we shouldn't do this because of Tottenham. We should do this because of football because it's the right thing to do. Great. Chaps, anything to add quickly? 
I'm not sure. I'm not sure England's ready to start trialling alcohol during watching of games yet. But I think it's like with all legislation, we just keep got to keep nudging. We've got to keep nudging them because uh, these things, as Milo says, can drag out too long and uh, strike while the iron's hot. While it's the yeah. subject that's on the table and a subject that, let's face it, loads of there's loads of football fans in this country, and yeah. there's only a few that support those top you know the top dope teams as we could say as well so there's plenty of interest from all the other levels for this to be pushed along the plan will be to try and drag this out past the next election that that's what the premier league will try to do and then you know who knows where we'd be then right so if you've ever held a banner in protest at the premier league or you've ever had a bleat about what they're not doing now is your chance to stand against them and help further football so lobby your mp we stand behind this uh, proposal Go for it. Put the pressure on. Let's make some change. And let's move on to possibly the, well, it may be the biggest news of the week. I'm not sure. Um, it was the tragic loss that Brian Hill suffered with the Golden Boy Award. He did not get it. He did not get Tuta Sports Golden Boy on Monday. He lost out to Barcelona's Pedri for this year's award with Jude Bellingham coming second. And we can tell you that our very own Ricky is currently inconsolable. Just uh, was uh, was in a puddle of grief earlier this evening. Uh, just, uh, I just, I, I, any, any words of, of sadness to share on Brian Hill not being a golden boy after all? Oh, I'm heartbroken. I'm sure, it, I suppose the classic phrase will always be next year. Yes. From the golden boy that wasn't to the Moura match that most certainly was. But wasn't, if you know what I mean. Uh, I think it's fair to say that on Thursday night, we expected to go to Mura and get three points. That did not happen. We lost 2-1. It was a rather grim evening, all said. We are going to break it down and try and get through it in this next segment. And first of all, you know, Ricky, what did you think of the lineup? Uh, did Conti make a mistake with all the changes or was it a planned learning session? I think in hindsight, you could think it was a bit of that. But I think at the time, he was rightfully saying that I need games. I need time to play these players. I need time to see these players. He'd put Sessegnon up for the media stuff to encourage all that kind of involvement from his point of view that obviously ended badly. But I mean, realistically, for context... Um, <laughs> Most of these are still, I know it's a cliche, international players and that kind of thing. But the Mura players probably certainly aren't there. I mean, for the context, they're poor in their own league. I think they're fifth, which is mid-table for them. Best of a bad bunch. Uh, they can't play these games even in their own stadium. They've got zero points from the games they've played so far. And even with the team we played, you'd expect Conte to probably be thinking that how far down the pyramid do we have to go to find someone that we can still reasonably have a comfortable game against and beat. So I think the lineup, yeah, many of them could be disappointed. I think out of the lineup, I'll just quickly say that Ndembele, Delhi, and Hill, I think Hill has been as well. I mean, they, all three of them have been behind for the international break, I think. So I think they had all that time with Conte. And I think that and on paper, there's a lot of creativity there. And we didn't really see any of that at all. I thought Ndebele wasn't too bad. But certainly Hill and Delhi just... It just wasn't happening for them. So, Milo, did you think that Sessing on sending off had the huge impact that, you know, a lot of people have said it did? Uh, I, I mean, what did you think of the nature of it, first and foremost? I celebrated our, um, our match against Burnley being abandoned by re-watching the Moura game. I thought, um, you know, my Sunday afternoon punishment <laughs> wasn't going to be available, so I had to find it somewhere else. But it was actually quite interesting going back and looking at it, and particularly looking at that first half an hour, because, you know, with hindsight and knowing what's happening. I actually think it was, you know, Moura's goal aside, I thought it was a pretty even first half an hour. I think, you know, we, we were on top and we weren't actually playing too bad at that point. In terms of uh, Cessnion's 
two yellows. The first was for a hand on the back, which maybe was a little bit soft. I mean, it was certainly a free kick. I'm not sure it was a yellow. And certainly some of the other challenges and things that were going in weren't getting similar treatment. You know, shortly after that, um, Delhi was thrown to the ground by a player and uh, Doherty got some uh, some rough treatment as well and wasn't they, they were, he wasn't giving yellows for that. And then the second one, I, again, I, I watched the uh, second yellow uh, quite a few times and I'm not even sure there was contact. I mean, he was definitely rash. He was late for the ball. I'm not sure there was contact. If there was contact, it was minimal. I, I wouldn't really argue with the yellow card, but I think the Mura player made a meal of it. Yeah, I think Sessegnon or Shady's inexperience. I think maybe putting him up for the press conferences might have been a bad idea because it might have made it even bigger for him than it needed to be. But I think also, you know, on another day, he probably doesn't get two yellows for those those two challenges. Um, in terms of making a difference, it made a huge difference because we had an hour with 10 men. Mura won, wore one goal up at that time, which meant that they didn't really have to commit men forwards. And, and for large chunks of the second half, they had eight men in the box, which we know is very difficult to um, to, defend, you know, to play against. But even so, we still created pl- you know, plenty of chances and we should... Again, on another day, um, some of those go in and it's a different game. But yeah, I think it made a huge difference. An hour with one man less is, is, is big against anyone. So, awesome. Rodon, Doherty, Hill and Delhi were all subbed on 54 minutes. I mean, do you think that any of them can feel hard done by? Of those four, I'd say possibly Rodon. And as has been touched on, I mean, although it's possibly one of the worst results in our long history, it it wasn't like we were that bad. Obviously, the, the, the sending off did impact on things. But, um, you know, Doherty is usually responsible for, you know, a fair share of his errors in, uh, in a game. And he didn't, he didn't have a particularly bad game. Hill and Delhi, I'd say, certainly had, you know, no gripes with being subbed. They were having poor games by their standards. There was a complete lack of creativity. You know, I'll go to you now, Ricky, on, on, on Davison Sanchez, who, by the way, I think both goals were mistakes by him. However, we all need to remember that there is not a supporter that I know that thinks that Davison Sanchez is a good left-sided centre-back. And I mean, he's uh, or even in the left side of three. I mean, he's never he's never played on the left side of defence well. Uh, so he was being played at left centre-back. I mean, do you think that that's a factor in his poor performance? I think so, as you say. I mean, I agree. He's never looked good on that left side. If you want some sort of um, technical analysis to it, I think when he plays on his normal side and you're right-footed, when you're in those kind of foot races back... You can kind of run level with the player or even slightly behind because your right foot will come across and slide into the play. You can make more of a reach with it. The problem when you're on that left-hand side is most... And this this isn't a criticism because most players will do this. If you're right-footed, you will still tackle with that right foot. And what you tend to do is maybe run with the player or slightly ahead because your thigh is close to his thigh, if you see what I mean. So you need to be slightly further ahead otherwise you might take the man before the ball. And... And even when you're running on that side, if you have to change direct, of course, and if you're slightly ahead of that person or level, it, it gives them the temptation to cut in. And we see that happen twice. And then when that, once they've cut in, if you want to turn around and face them and not turn your back to them, you also have to plant your left foot to then push off and do it. And that all feels unnatural if you're right footed. And I think his body just doesn't work that well around that way, if you see what I mean. I mean, the other analysis I've made of him in the past is I think when he came from Ajax, we thought he was a beast, didn't we? And um, I think that's a fallacy, to be honest. I think he's a physical specimen. You know, if he was, you know, he's, he's probably got a much better body than any of us for. But um, um, he's very, very upright. He's almost a bit like a mm. skittle. And um, 
he's not very good at controlling his centre of balance. And whenever he plays like the um, the Rondon, the Dinis, probably the Chris Woods, anything physical, he can easily be knocked off balance and knocked off the ball. And other players aren't like that. If you look at Romero or something, completely different beast. He's completely in control of where his body is and where he places it. He's bit, but he's played well. I mean, he played well last year, Dyer, and he's been okay. He's been okay this year. I think I agree with what Gareth said. I think some pods ago, where I think he's okay, but he's not going to be a player that plays in a team that is then going to end up being a top team. Because I think he might need to be. We might need centre backs to be okay on the ball as well, and he's not even that great on the ball. I'm not saying he's terrible, but yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought up his his posture and and his and his actual physicality because I think it's a massive part of why he cannot fill in on the left hand side. I mean, some players, even Eric Dyer, can fill in on the left hand side to a fairly proficient degree because their posture is not such that that it, it it he is very awkward on the turn against his natural foot. I mean, you're absolutely right, and it is this, just doesn't look balanced at all on the left-hand side. He never looks comfortable and he does look like a player who plays in his head quite a lot. I mean, mm. he always looks to me quite nervous. Like, you know, Dyer, for whatever you say about him, he'll go out there single-minded. But Sanchez, you feel that he might already have gone out with slightly uncomfortable knowing where he was mm. playing. So, yeah, I'm glad you brought up the posture thing. I think it's really important. Um, but, you know, let's talk about Skip and Kane, Milo. Uh, how do you think the two of them did, being the two regular first-teamers that started? Um, I mean, Skip, I think, is probably the only player out of the starting eleven who can really hold his head up high. I think he had a pretty good game, covered a lot of ground, worked really hard. I, th- I think it was very strong. And, you know, both um, defensively and going forwards, there's, there's a few chances he created. Uh, just shortly after Cessniel went off, he, he put a, a lovely pass through to Kane on the edge of the area where Kane turned his man and shot and it was just, it was just uh, uh, slightly wide and um, so yeah I thought he had a I thought he had a very good game I think Kane it's difficult isn't it so if, if you if you judge Kane against the 11 players that started I think he had he was one of our better performers if you judge Kane against his own standards it wasn't a great yeah it wasn't a great performance his goal was was really well taken he, he had plenty of chances but um, you know a genuinely world-class player would put that game to bed with those chances, and so yeah, I think he was one of our better better of the eleven players who started, but he didn't have a good game by his own standards. I mean, I think my my issue with uh, the reaction to the Mora game uh, is, is centers around this precise sort of question. You know, Harry Kane's missed an absolute sitter again from six, seven yards out. Another free header that should have been put away. I mean, he's missed several in the last few weeks. Not a word hardly is mentioned about it, you know. But of course, you know, Sanchez has been getting pelters. And I have to say, I mean, I agree with you when you say that, you know, quality players will put games like that to bed by themselves. And I think I was I was saying in our chat thread, you know, is there a player out there who's absolutely going to say, we're not losing this game while I'm on the pitch, I'm going to win it. And you look to Harry to be that player I know that you said, Milo, we talked about this um, off pod. You said that he's never quite been that sort of player for you. I'm hoping that he could grow into one off the back of being an England captain. I keep on waiting. Am I, am I stupid to wait for that type of personality to emerge? I don't think personality will ever change, will it? So I don't think... I, I think he's one of those players that um, is a captain because of what he can do on the pitch rather than what he brings off it is kind of my impression. He, yeah, he doesn't seem a particularly inspirational speaker or, you know, he doesn't really carry himself with a you know a huge amount of that. He's not one of the most verbal on the pitch. You rarely see him um, geeing other players up or, or, or even really talking to them that much. So, yeah, I, don't, I just don't think that's that's part of who he is. And, 
you know, he's a, he's a great player. He's a great, great player. Um, but uh, there are there have been lots and lots of key games that he's gone missing in. Very quick question before we move on, and it's not in the notes, but I just thought about this. Do you think it was a mistake to not play Hugo Lloris? Yeah, Galini's shit. <laughs> I keep looking at that first goal and wondering, he's one of those keepers that's, um, you know, when the keeper's just beaten all ends up and they don't even make an attempt for a save. I wonder with that first goal whether that was fair that he didn't attempt to save it. It was in the corner. It was a, a pretty good goal. But yeah, zero effort to even try and save it. I think Hugo probably would have had a go. Yeah, he's no, he's no Ramsdale, is he? <laughs> yeah, not even the toning down of his barnet has helped him uh, uh, achieve a sense of uh, sensible play and goal. I mean, I, I, I thought he was absolutely anonymous. And uh, frankly, as a goalkeeper, yeah. you, you don't mind anonymity when you're controlling the game. But when there's work to be done, you don't want anonymity. You want him to actually make a, have a presence. If we could bring someone else in January, I would favour cancelling his loan. Excellent. I think we'd all be in agreement with that. And also, I want to come to you on something that, you know, Gareth has been mentioning in our chat thread, um, you know, very well articulated it has been as well, that, you know, these types of European ties, you know, they have caused problems for us for some considerable amount of time now. And, and you know, why are we always so sluggish in this type of, of European tie, this very specific, you know, sort of qualifying, uh, or sorry, group stage, I should say, although mm. we've had our dalliances of qualifying games even. These quote-unquote smaller games that we tend to make epic. You've got to assume that it's a mentality thing. I mean, it, it didn't seem to, you know, we didn't have these issues with playing smaller teams in Champions League, but in the Europa and in the Conference, it has happened a lot, obviously, particularly in away games. And for that reason, I think you've got to assume it's maybe a mentality thing and the players aren't taking it as seriously as they would do if it was, you know, a, a Champions League event. It's extremely depressing as a fan and it's um and it's happening again and again um I wonder whether or not teams lift themselves when we come to play because we are one of the bigger fish in the tournament you know I wouldn't say that the Moura fans were as up for it as the Wren fans or you know other other clubs that we played in the last few years of not being at the top tier of European football but um you do tend to go to these grounds and it's atmosphere is rocking and the players respond to it and we're and we're just not there we're not the races so, yeah, I'd have to go with it being a mentality thing, unfortunately. Yeah, I might also slide in perhaps the fact we don't have a Sebastian Bassong to uh, save us, as he did famously in the qualifying Champions League game against Young Boys all those years ago, uh, is a factor. I say that in jest to try and, try and uh, elevate the, the mood a little bit because, of course, that 2-1 defeat to Mura was, you know, was a semi-death knell for a few of our players, I think. And uh, we come to a subject that uh, it pains me to talk about, it. actually. We're coming to, to Deli Alley, and I'm going to just say a couple of things here before I uh, throw it open to the floor. You know, I've, I've, I've backed Deli for years, uh, and I've believed in him, and I want to believe in him, and I will always want to believe in him. But I just am witnessing someone who I think looks like they've fallen out of love with football. He just doesn't look like he enjoys playing anymore. And so much of Deli Alley is about that insouciance, that that joy of playing, um, you know, that sort of street kid, I guess, and also that little edge of, of aggression and temper. And he doesn't seem to have any of it. He just now seems to be a very functional runner who occasionally might do something. And I thought that for him... Thursday was disastrous. Uh, am I overstating that? Where does this leave Delhi as a Tottenham Hotspur player? It feels like he's on the brink, doesn't it? January window might actually be 
quite good timing for for him and us. I mean, the only time he showed any aggression, it looked like against Moura was when uh, Hill got body checked and um, Delhi went and did his old sort of pushing and shoving and showing that you know he cared. But that's not that's not where we need him to show he cares. It's um, it's with his creativity and it's it seems to have left his body. Yeah, I mean, I think. In mitigation, I think he's another player who's played in a formation, uh, played in a position on uh, Thursday that doesn't really suit him. You know, playing playing in in a front three probably probably isn't his game. But I think that's part of the problem. It's difficult to see what his position is in 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 most modern sides now. I think the other thing is that yeah, you know, his best he was a player who played on instinct. He's a you know a street footballer. He does a lot of things technically wrong, but they worked. And I, I wonder whether that makes it harder for him to recover his form because he doesn't know why he was good in the first place. It just happened. So I do wonder whether that's an issue. I could see him. I think you're right about him being a kind of functional runner now, effectively. And that's kind of how Nuno was using him earlier in the season, isn't it? And I, I do wonder whether that's, if he can't re, you know, regain that spark, he can't find that again, you know, whether that's what the rest of his career is, whether he, he he's a, a lower level club as a functional, hardworking midfielder, because without that spark, that's probably all he's got left. Well, that, that, I mean, that does sound so sad considering what, you know, the experience that you've had him in the past. But um, I think, especially at this level, football, when you're going in to work, and they, that's what it is, work for them, football is a classroom for them. And I just don't think he's ever improved on the things that he's not good at. And that's his main problem. Mm-hmm. And I just think that he's not learned to adapt. If you if he looks at some other players around him, you think of Kane constantly working on his game, constantly improving, uh, new strings to his bow. The same with Son, a relentless learner. I mean, when Son first came, mm-hmm. I thought physically he might struggle with the league, and now I don't think that at all. Um, Eric Dyer asked to turn into a defense defensive centre midfielder. He learnt that, and he was good at that. He played for England in that role as well. And I just think Delhi is he's just not he's just not moved on with the bad bits and i think that has now added up to him losing his way but i'm not sure where that leaves him really that's that's the really sad thing about it and i mean if i could really if i could really say something nasty about him it's that when other when those other people are learning in training all he's doing is looking at nutmegs in training putting the ball through someone's leg for a laugh and i know that sounds really harsh and that's very a flippant statement but maybe that's you know that's a sign of something his learning ability i think it's a very very fair point that you make that he hasn't improved on the things he's not good at and equally I think Milo's point about where he's been deployed is is also uh, uh, you know very very good you know I think the two are definite factors in why he is where he's at which is for me a player who is really not loving football with Tottenham Hotspur anymore and I mean I think the best for everyone concerned would be for him to get a fresh start preferably in January I mean you do feel that if he went somewhere like Newcastle you know he may very well get to play football in a way that he wants to play up there and there might be a couple more Mavericks like that you know uh, suit him up there and perhaps he can find a new lease on life I'd love to see him enjoy his football again because a joyless Delhi is a very sad thing to see it really is so um, if nothing else as we've all said about the Murrah game and this is something that's important that hopefully clarity uh, will come from it and maybe this is an area of clarity that we can look forward to the final question uh on this well not just mora on this whole tournament actually 
Our last game is at home against the group winners, Wren. <laughs> uh, should we throw it or put out a strong side and try for second place? I'll, I'll, I'll conclude this with my thoughts. So, chaps, you steam in now and get them in. I actually had a bit of a soft spot for this tournament, but needless to say now, I've completely flipped round. Um, I meant Wren have drawn two games at home and have still won the group with a game to spare. You know, that's mm. you know, if you drew two games at home, you wouldn't think you'd be winning the group like that. We've played Moore at home and then had to bring on the cavalry because we had a bit of a nervy moment. Vitesse steamrolled them and then had a nervy moment. It got back to 3-2 and we just... And we struggled through most of the games. And to think that we're going to struggle through all the other rounds. And the other problem, to not struggle, we might have to bring on the cavalry or start the um, most of our first-teamers. And I just don't think we can put add that mileage onto what we're going to ask them to do in the Premier League. So I'm now, I was going to get a ticket for this Ren game because I thought it might be a winner-take-all game. It always turn out to be good games, winner-take-alls game. And now it's not that at all. Um, so I'm glad I didn't get a ticket. And I hope that we... I hope that we somehow finish third, yeah. The permutations of all the different results is a headache just trying to uh, figure it out with the scores and everything. But it's um, it's not really in the nature of, I'd say, especially our managers to throw a game, is it? So I, I can't see us deliberately not going through. Personally, I, I wouldn't lose a second sleep if we were knocked out of this tournament. We just don't need it now with what we've got ahead of us over the next six months and a chance of top four. Um, and I don't see any benefit in remaining in this tournament. So in terms of the maths, we've got um, we're two goals up on goal difference from Vitesse. Yeah, in terms of so Conte, you know, you say it's not in his nature, but he's actually his European record isn't very good. Last season, Inter went out in the group stage in the Champions League. Season before that, they went out of the Champions League in the group stage, although they dropped into the Europa League and got to the final. Chelsea in his only season in Champions League, with Chelsea got to the last sixteen and got knocked out. Uh, before that, Juve got knocked out in the group stage and then his two seasons before that with uh, Juve he got the semi-final and quarter-final but yeah broadly speaking it's not not uh, something that he focuses on and I think the Italian journey they had on uh, the extra inch was saying there that he struggles to cope or focus on more than one game a week and uh, will prioritize the league I don't think he'd probably lose too much sleep if we got knocked out in a, in a couple of weeks time I really really don't like the idea of getting two extra games a playoff against a Europa League dropout in March. No, February, I think it is. February. Either side of the City game. So, yeah, I don't fancy that. So, and I think, you know, at the end of this, we get a cup that no one will take, take seriously if we won, won it and we win a Europa League place. I'd rather we focused on the league and the chance of getting a Champions League place. But I think a Europa, play, a Europa League place through the league would be a better season than a Europa League place through the through the uh, Europa Conference. So, yeah, I hope that we win, but I hope that we win by less than <laughs> Viteska against, um, against against Moura. I think what I hope is that our support base can actually develop a sense of realism once again. And look, I know I'm asking for an awful lot of courage from an awful lot of knee-jerkers out there, but let me just say that this was not the worst result we've ever had in European history, in my opinion. Uh, it's not even the worst European result we've had in recent years. I thought the Zagreb collapse was a disgrace, and I thought that losing to Red Bull the way we did two years ago, we were actually in the Champions League with a side that was supposedly well up for it, was equally poor. So I think we all need to recognise that we need Champions League football for Antonio Conte to realise his dream uh, of bringing us to uh, uh, the next level again and for us to re-realise the dream of where we were at 
two, three seasons ago. And for that to happen, I think it's imperative that we don't go through this tournament. I, I see no front end to this tournament whatsoever. Uh, as a matter of fact, I can see more heartache down the line, the way things have played out for us in such tournaments over the years. So uh, I, I, I couldn't agree more that I hope that we don't win uh, or at the very least don't go through. Yes, of course, you don't go to throw a game or to lose a game. But, you know, we need to th- recognise that right now we need to apportion our energies where they're most needed and they are most needed to get this club into the top four. Fourth is still open. And like it or not, everyone, we need the money that the Champions League brings so as we can get the players to keep us in the Champions League, playing better games, going for better trophies and possibly being, uh, you know, one of the big boys again. So there we have it, in my opinion. Can I just say, though, Conte does say, keep saying, the thing he keeps saying is patience and time, patience and time. That's what we're going to mm. have. And of course, two extra games in February and a possible two extra games in January with the um, Caribou Cup is the opposite to that. It's just going to be consumed again during the middle of the week. So... On to today's game at Turf Moor against Burnley, which wasn't postponed 50 minutes before kickoff. We've given you all the details in the preamble, had a little bit of a chit-chat about it. To be fair, we were all pissing and moaning at 2pm this afternoon, uh, UK time, but presumably we would have been even more annoyed if the game had gone ahead and the key player got injured. We do feel for all the fans who made the trip as well, especially the couple from Dallas. I certainly hope that uh, the rest of your trip to the UK is uh, is far better and, you know, perhaps... I saw that Mickey Hazard has invited you to a night out with the legends. Hopefully a few more of our current legends will uh, find their way of seeing you during the week as well. And hopefully you get to the game on Thursday. So that being said, uh, I'm going to just keep this really simple. Chaps, going to go to each of you. Was it a good thing this was postponed or a bad thing? Milo, I'm going to start with you. I think this leads on from our, the last point we were making about the um, about the Europa Conference. I think the last thing we need is another fixture in the new year. There aren't many slots for it to fit in, so that that's a pain. And it looked like quite a good time to play Burnley with uh, the number of players they had injured and suspended. The only player we're missing is uh, Romero, which is a huge loss, but... I think on the whole, it doesn't do us any favours. The only the only positive I'd take from this is it means that we will be able to do a f- full training session tomorrow. So it gives us an extra day to prepare for um, Brentford. Awesome. Uh, I mean, I never like it when a game gets cancelled so last minute. But I mean, away at Burnley's not always the easiest ground. It is sort of quite brutal conditions up there in the best of times. And having to play them with weather like that might negate our uh, sort of high skill levels so I don't know I I, I think it's six one and a half a dozen of the other to be honest there's not a lot we can do about it Ricky uh, not a lot to add really it did make you chuckle on Twitter I think someone said I would have taken a PP before kickoff which I thought was quite a funny comment <laughs> Like postponed? You get it now? No. Mm. It would have been a, a bit of Frank Zappa yellow snow you're suggesting there, are you? That's oh, what it sounds no. like to me. <laughs> but no, I mean, it gets, as Milo says, it gives an extra bit of training uh, when they're not going to have to have a day off or whatever they were doing before Thursday's game. And I suppose, I mean, pff, I don't know. I suppose it was welcome news for the um, train stations and the motorway service stations that we got a head start f- uh, from the Happy Hammers as they were coming home from the chat as well. So that kind of kept us two groups of supporters apart. That's always... One bonus for them, I suppose. But no, nothing to add. Let's move on. Next, you're going to get into the fact that the supporters wouldn't have met at the Nutsford services on the drive home. So we're going to get really pet technical on uh, keeping the fans apart. I'm going to say this. I wish we played. I was well up for it. I think the team would have been well up for it. I think there would have been no better response 
to Thursday night than actually beating Burnley in those conditions. I think it would have really, you know, put a few people to rest in terms of, you know, we're softies and prima donnas and, you know, can't show up for the tough stuff and all that business. So I, I actually think it was a bad thing we didn't play because we are going to have to play that game at some point. And uh, as we say, we really don't want the fixtures getting compressed in one one log jam in the new year. So I think it was a bad thing we didn't play. Having said that, uh, the snow in and of itself does remind us that Santa is around the corner. And who doesn't like a Tottenham Hotspur gift on Christmas Day? Or indeed, even a football-related gift on Christmas Day? Well, you're listening to the right pod because we're going to suggest to you a few gifts that will make a fellow Spurs supporter or any football fan happy this holiday season. Or if you just want to treat yourself to a little holiday reward, then settle in with your pen and paper to take notes as the game is about glory. Present some great gift suggestions for this festive period. And just to reiterate, it's the festive season. Yeah, it's the holiday season. And so it's for everyone. Everyone should enjoy a bit of gift giving, however you celebrate these holidays. Each of us have chosen three football related gifts we think are well worth getting or receiving. And there's a couple of cracking group approved wildcards too. You'll find links to all of the present ideas that we discuss on our website gameisaboutglory.co.uk These are pure and personal suggestions from each of us on the show tonight. They're things that we liked and thought you might too, so bear that in mind. But anyway, before we get into your fantastic gift ideas, just let me ask you guys, have any of you ever received any absolute shockers? What, Tottenham ones? Ah, football ones in general. Yeah, the football gift that Granny got wrong, you know. Yeah, basically, I was just about to say that. I think my <laughs> nan uh, was to get me a football, to get me a Tottenham school bag once, and it turned out to be Man United, which I was <laughs> honestly... But nan, nans don't really know this stuff, let's be honest. <laughs> I got given a Man United calendar <laughs> and as an adult and um, <laughs> and was said, well, they, they didn't have any Spurs ones. I thought this was the next best. It was like... I don't think you understand. Is that what you said? But just walked away with yeah, a shaky yeah, head. Yeah, yeah. yeah. just don't yeah. think you understand. Right. This calendar is no good. Yeah. Anyway, I thought Berbatov played for Tot. <laughs> is that what she said <laughs> when he was on the cover? <laughs> oh dear. First of all, Ricky, yeah. you're first up. Your first gift, if you would please. Drum roll. So my first recommendation is um, some lovely pictures by Matthew J. Wood. And they're football. he does football ground prints, but he does some particular nice ones of our very own club. And they're sort of a kind of minimalist, kind of uncluttered, clean line illustrations. And in our case, he does a nice one of probably the Lane circa 2000, probably pretty much as it was until it was knocked down. And there's also a lovely old picture of the old East Stand, complete with the original shelf intact, which... Um, is something I'm going to buy myself because I was lucky enough when I went in 87 to have the last couple of years of the shelf there. And um, although I love our new ground, I don't want the memories. I think all of us don't want the memories of the old lane to fade, do we, people? You know what I mean? And um, I sometimes see some of the old videos and... If we can adorn our walls at home with some lovely stuff, then it will always keep those memories fresh. And something that's quite personal to you that resonates with you. So um, I was going to get Milo like a nice picture of the smoky latrines at the old lane, I thought. That bit like, <laughs> <laughs> with like smell of vision maybe on it. No, kind of, yeah. nice scratch and sniff picture. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> We'll do that on the Games About Glory uh, shop that we'll launch for next Christmas. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Excellent. Okay, so from Matthew J. Wood's Stadium Prints, Milo, going to go to you next uh, for your first uh, suggestion. So my first suggestion is a book, and it's The Numbers Game, Why Everything You Know About Football is Wrong, by Chris Anderson and David Sally. And 
I've got a few books in here which basically would save you the effort of having to listen to me waffle on every week. Um, so buy this book, read it. It's really, it is really, really interesting. It's statistical uh, analysis of you know, lots of, kind of common things in the game about you know kind of why we're wrong to think that we're likely to score from a corner or things like that. Uh, it looks at the data. It looks at what the real the real reality of it is, and um, it's a really good read. It's uh, it's not as dry as it, it might sound, and it was a book that had a big impact on me, big influence on me. I really like it. I really, I really recommend it. It's a good read. Excellent. So that was The Numbers Game, Why Everything You Know About Football Is Wrong by Chris Anderson and David Sally. And awesome. Your first suggestion for our uh, listening public, please. As someone who hasn't had the uh, the joy yet of being able to go to our new stadium, although I've been on the outside of it, Dare Skywalk is something that I think a lot of people would be pretty happy to receive in a in a card as a as an experience. Yours for around forty forty pounds, you get to go fifty meters up above our, our beautiful stadium. It sounds like it's probably worth waiting a few months after Christmas before actually doing it because I don't doesn't look a lot of fun in February that. But yeah, I just think it'd be a great way to experience the stadium. Ideally, go to a game afterwards. But yeah, I think whether young or old, it would be a gift that a lot of people would be happy to receive. Excellent. And once again, that is the Dare Skywalk. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of it because the club don't do a very good job promoting it. That was drier than statistics, but you just mentioned Milo. So <laughs> It's not a dry book. No, I know. I was I was having... It's very humorous. I, 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 I am going to buy it simply because on your recommendation of it being humorous. It's good. I would say 57.9% of the jokes land really well. Excellent. And once... <laughs> very good. Um, I'm going to stop. My first selection for tonight is also a book. Uh, frankly, I think all my selections are books, um, but it is all played out. The full story of Italia 90, the paperback version by Pete Davis. Uh, I'm going to keep it very brief. This is one of the greatest printed documentaries on a football tournament I've ever read in my life. Uh, it's a book that you will go back to, I think, at least three or four more times after reading it once. And if ever you wanted to know how, Italian 90 ended up at that iconic image of Paul Gascoigne crying into his shirt in real detail. You should read this book. Uh, a tremendously written book, a lot of information, a lot of colour, a lot of background, a lot of insider stuff, and all written in a really, really tasteful yet colloquial way by Pete Davis. So that's all played out, the full story of Italian 90 by Pete Davis. Um, and from that, Ricky. You're yes. up again with your second uh, your second selection. Well, this one is from um, the good people at Savile Road, and it's a cashmere scarf, no less. That's 100% cashmere, none of this 5% nonsense. And it's a real thing of beautiful softness. I would say, you know, originally you'd aim this at our friends in the West End, but um, judging by ticket prices at the moment, I think we can all assume a certain level of affluence. But it's they have a range, they have beanies as well, but I think the one to go for is the classic navy and white bar scarf bar scarf. And um judging by I mean last Sunday sitting in that south stand at, in the Leeds game, um I mean I'd I'd welcome this scarf if someone would like to have like, you know, paid one paid one for me. But um and two, two for the people up at uh, Burnley today. That is the perfect thing for them. It's um got no logo, it's not got the chicken badge on, but it is Definitely quintessential Spurs. And I think, oh, the Mongolian goats, I think they've been on course this year, so they've got plenty of stuff in stock. So they've been, you know... It's really nice. It's really nice. <coughs> Mrs. Ricky, calling Mrs. Ricky. Uh, that was the Savile Rogue. Yes. R-O-G-U-E, navy and white, King Cashmere football scarf. Milo, 
You're up next. Another book from me, um, The Spurs Shirt, The Official History of the Tottenham of um, Tottenham Hotspur uh, by Simon Shakeshaft. So it's a bit of a coffee table book. It goes through all of the... Um, all the shirts, all of the all the strips we've ever had, uh, story uh, stories about each of them, and some of the players who've worn them. Uh, but it's beautifully presented, looks really nice, and yeah, it's a really good book. The one thing it won't have is a two hundred dollar Gareth Bale named replica shirt from last <laughs> season. Actually, it might have come to think of it. Anyway, that looks like a great choice. The Spurs shirt, the official history of the Tottenham Hotspur shirt by Simon Shakeshift. Awesome. Next on your docket. Next on my docket is the book called Brave New World about the 16-17 Pochettino season written by Guillaume Balegue. It's sort of a, it's kind of like a diary biography that isn't either of those two things, but it's, uh, it, he's got amazing access into that season, backroom staff for I think the whole length of that season. And I guess really it does a good job of documenting what was the last genuine high as a as a Tottenham fan for many of us um so yeah it's a good read not not a difficult read and a really good insight really into the thoughts and feelings of of Poch I think it's a brave choice bringing the book that destroyed Poch's time at Spurs here while Steph is hosting it's a sore subject (laughs) have we all read it (laughs) yeah I did I have read it yeah it was a monumental mistake by Poch wasn't it I find it hard to comment. Brave New World, Inside Pochettino Spurs by (laughs) Guillaume Balagay. I'm going to move on to my second choice, which is uh, Among the Thugs by Bill Buford. Uh, To give you a bit of a background on Bill Buford, he is uh, an American journalist who's originally from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and who was uh, an editor at the uh, at Grunter, and he's uh, was previously the fiction editor for the New Yorker as well. So we're looking at a very uh, studied and somewhat intellectual uh, literary man here, who was curiously affected and I dare say seduced by a carriage load of Manchester United football hooligans and thus decided to throw himself into following them and getting into the culture of what they were who they were, what comprised them and what they did. And it ended up taking, it took a fair part of him. It took, I think, a couple of years at least there. He was he was really sucked in. And what it does is it gives you, I think, the quintessential view of lad hooligan culture from an intellectual's point of view. And I won't ruin it for you, but the conclusion of this book is both stunning and I think worthy of coffee table conversation uh, for, for any any group of football supporters. It's a truly brilliantly written book because it balances things that we all disapprove of and presents them in a way that is both engaging, entertaining and, dare I say, enlightening in some senses. So Among the Thugs by Bill Buford. I must have bought this book for four or five people at least and I must have read it a good dozen times. So I couldn't recommend it more. And he is a brilliant writer. He's written another great book about making pasta, but that's for a whole other time. Ricky! Your My final, final one is... It is a book this time. So it is A Spur Forever by Steve Perrinham. And uh, of 854 appearances, he's generally, genuinely Mr Tottenham, I think, along with Bill Nick, and rightfully called Skipper by everyone. Um, his debut was in 69, so he transcended many eras, three decades, all through the early 70s, the UEFA Cup wins, the League Cup wins then, then the relegation, the Terry Neal, the relegation, and then ended up, well, started with Bill Nick, but ended up with Keith Birkinshaw, the general, and much more success there. So over 300 pages, 300 images of 
pictures, snippets, and uh, images of um, the skipper's own memorabilia. But a, a must-read for all Tottenham fans, I think. A true legend. Your final selection, please, Milo. So it's another book which, if you read, you won't have to bother listening to me. Uh, the Mixer, <laughs> The Story of Premier League Tactics from Route 1 to Force Nines by Michael Cox. Um, I could have easily picked uh, Michael Cox's um, Zonal Marking or uh, Inverting the Pyramid would have been another one here that would have been quite easy to pick. I've been a big fan of Michael Cox since he started his Zonal Marking blog. Uh, again, it's another he's another writer who had a huge impact on me. I think it's probably fair to say that the only reason I've got an athletic subscription is because that's where he writes now. I think he's I think he's excellent and uh, it's a really good book you know describing the evolution of the English game and and, and uh, yeah and the changes over uh, along the way highly recommend him excellent and awesome your final selection this evening is obviously it wouldn't be Christmas without socks these uh, these Tottenham Hotspur personalised face and name socks allow you to have um, a full kit wanker version of yourself on your on your feet I would also like to uh, hazard a guess as the fact that they are not cashmere um, <laughs> uh, so I'm going to throw in my final selection it is a book be no surprise if you have not read The Glory Game by Hunter Davis Consider yourself chastised by this pod. Is it the quintessential Tottenham Hotspur book? I think there's a very good argument for it. Uh, it covers the 71-72 season. Uh, Hunter Davis got what I would consider to be incredible access, not only at the time, but even now, to the dressing room, to the club, and to people that back then were really monolithic and very private. And I'm talking about, you know, the Eddie Baileys, I'm talking about the the Sibyl Nicks, uh, you know, these are very private people. And it also did something which I thought was incredible. It actually had aggregated, you know, political beliefs, lifestyle choices and all of that with with, 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 with the players. Uh, it paints, I think it's the most comprehensive picture of a football team season that I've ever read. Uh, there's a reason it's been reprinted a gazillion times and where there's at least, I think, six different covers that you'll find for this book, depending on where you decide to buy it from. And I say decide to buy it from because if you do not have it, you will buy it if for yourself. And if not for yourself, you'll buy it for the Tottenham Hotspur supporter you know that doesn't have it. It is it is mandatory. So uh, and and again, thank you to Hunter Davis for writing what I consider to be the single greatest uh, book about a football club season ever. So it's the best book on Spurs and one of the best books on football. Full stop. Yeah, I and yeah. If that isn't a high enough recommendation for you, then I don't know what is. And I'm being perfectly serious. I think we're all on the same page. So that is compulsory purchasing. Um, I, I, you know, look, there are a couple of wild cards here. Mind if I just rattle through these chaps? They're, uh, yeah, rattle through them. Go for it. Cards. Okay, there's a Sabutio VAR set. And I mean, look, let's be honest. I mean, I love Sabutio. We all love Sabutio. But the great thing about this particular collection is you don't need to play Sabutio to enjoy it. Just set it up on the match days when you're telebound beside you. And at the magic moment, consult your only VAR team. Um, you'll have it there right beside you. I, you know, we think the game is about glory. It's a bit naff that the only manager that they make to go with these VAR sets is Mikel Arteta. Surely that's Lego, isn't it? It is, but I'm sure they all kind of have the same hair in Sabutio as well, don't they? So, uh, but <laughs> anyway, the Spurs fire pit. Awesome. You had spotted this gentleman, had you not? I had, through Instagram, I think it was. And it's it's an amazing creation. Probably about five, six foot in height. So it's it's serious piece of equipment. They're extremely popular. If you look on the comments section, you'll see person after person just asking how they can get them. Um, which, which, 
which actually I'm going to cut you off and say is precisely the reason that we couldn't have it as a main gift because we did try ourselves, all of us, I think, to try and find exactly where we could locate and, and order and buy these. But it seems that you have to track down this chap's Twitter, Facebook and Instagram and, and send him a message and gauge it. But I, but I think we're all in agreement that the photograph uh, of this of these pieces is, is incredible and it does look fantastic. So if you fancy... If you fancy an adventure, it may well be one worth taking. And if you find out any specific costs or dimensions, let us know with it, uh, on our social media. We'd like to know a little more about it. <laughs> this one was really good, wasn't it? The Tottenham Hotspur Stadium edition of Monopoly. <laughs> I mean, it really is the club doing their best to dispel accusations that they use ownership as a front to build up a portfolio pr- a property portfolio uh, we were thinking about this we hope that it includes a community chess card saying the government have refused your offer to knock down their athletic stadium go directly to Tottenham do not pass go uh, we do not however expect it to have a community chess card referring to Archway Steel so uh, anyway <laughs> there's a certain irony in that one for sure and then the last sort of wild card that we saw was uh, Tottenham Greatest Modern Moments Coaster Set. It really is the perfect item for drinkers and scholars among us, with each coaster depicting a full play pattern behind immortal goals by Hazza in the NLD, Lucas Moore in the Champions League semi-final, Lorente in the Champions League quarter-final, and Sonny in the new stadium's opening game. And, yeah, the more drinks are rested upon it, the greater the slowly fading into drunken babble about each moment will become. You'd have to play Rotate the Coaster... Uh, and you'll be able to just flash the damn thing at everyone when you tell them for the hundredth time why this is the greatest goal in our history. So marvellous stuff. And I would recommend that you uh, order Slate over Leatherette. It comes in two versions. Uh, again, just to repeat, you can find links to all of these gifts where we've been able to find them. I think the only one we couldn't, as I say, source was the fire pit. But everything else you'll find a link for on our website. The game is about glory.co.uk. Please visit. Please enjoy. And thanks very much, chaps. That was excellent. A quick few minutes on Brentford because we host them on Thursday night. They're on a bit of a tough run of form at the moment. Or Having said that, they did beat Everton today uh, thanks to the Ivan Tony's penalty. Uh, very quickly, a two-part question I'm going to throw at each of you. Let's keep it brief. Awesome. Who, sh- who should play and are you confident? I'd like to see Endon Belay get a start. Am I confident it's at home? Confident enough, yes. Ricky? Um, just the team that should have started today, I think. Are you confident? That's the second part. Um, well, can't, don't avoid d- that. Don't try and duck out of that one, Sonny Jim. Um, we're at home, aren't we? So um, I'm quite confident yeah. for that. So, um, But Brentford have have given teams... A, I mean, they're a well-coached side, so sometimes a well-coached side does give us a few problems. So um, I don't know. I'm confident, yes. We need to be. So, Milo, uh, aside from that, I'd like to add another bit, which is I want you to give us an exact score prediction with the minutes that the goals are going to come in, please. Mm, okay. <laughs> You'll be waiting. You've, you've got to go before I have. I can, I can string this out. <laughs> Uh, I think the side pretty much picks itself at the moment apart from right centre-back. So as much as I'd like to see a switch to 3-5-2, I don't think he'll do that. I think um, So I think it'll be Skip and Hoybier in midfield, you know, Sun, Kane and Mora up top, you know, everyone else you pretty much expect. And then it's a toss-up between Jeffett and Sanchez at right centre-back. Um, Sanchez 
got the nod today, although didn't play. And it will be interesting to see whether that's um, a preference after he tried Jaffet there um, against Leeds or whether it was something specific for today's opponents. I don't know. So that would be interesting. Other than that, I think the team picks itself at the moment. I think it might be interesting with my physical comments with Sanchez earlier if... Because Tony's quite a physical player, isn't he? So mm. that might be an interesting kind of match-up there. I, yeah. I think it'll be the side that he picked today. Sanchez will play. I think we'll win 2-1. I think it's got 2-1 written all over it. I would say 3 because I think at some point we do have to score 3 goals in a game. I don't think this is going to be the game it is. But I do think we're going to win. I don't think Antonio Conte will see us lose this game. And this is our first game on Amazon Prime this season, isn't it? Let's do it for Amazon. Actually, balls to that. Let's <laughs> do it for Tottenham Hotspur Football Club because Amazon put out that horrible tape TV show, which none of us really like. But what we do like is Norwich. I don't know why I segued like that. I think I was thinking of Delia Smith and she cooks nice food and I was going to try and make a food thing, but it just, it's just useless. So why don't I just say Norwich next Sunday? We welcome Delia's boys to our lane. Ah, oh, there it is. That's the pun. Will we cut the mustard? That's what it was. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh-huh. I'm sorry. I'm dragging us to the end of this pod with some feeble attempts at humour. I do apologise, although some would say I do that every single week. Ricky, save us. Who should play? Are you confident? The same two questions. Oh, this one I'm well confident for. We'll smash them. We're at home again, aren't we? Yeah, just to make yeah. sure. Yeah, we'll definitely smash them then. Uh, starting eleven. Someone else can tackle that one. It's probably the same team, I presume. <laughs> awesome. I think depending on what happens against Brentford, yeah, possibly the same team, especially if we beat Brentford. I think it's the two lowest scoring teams in the league, isn't it? That's Norwich. So I'm going to go nil-nil. <laughs> wow. That is a ballsy prediction. Milo, what you got? Yeah, same side that I think should start against Brentford. Like I said, I think they pick themselves at the moment. Um, yeah, I'm confident. I think he'll want to keep his defence as fresh as he can, where he can. I think he'll bring Jaffet back in for this game. And I think it's going to be really tough. I think it'll be another 2-1 victory. But I don't think we should write Dean Smith off. He's no mug. He's a good manager and he's had a good effect at Norwich. I think mm-hmm. we might be guilty of thinking of uh, Daniel Fart Norwich, uh, in which case we could indeed have fucked them off. There we are. Finally, I've hit one. Uh, but this is Dean Smith Norwich, so I think they're going to give us a hard time. Um, another tough game. So, uh, But I do think we'll prevail. I think we'll have six points by the time we uh, come to do our next pod, which will, of course, be next week, where we'll be talking about the two games we've just given you a very brief preview of. Hope you've enjoyed this one. Uh, odd as it was for us to put together the way that we had to at the last minute with the postponement of Burnley, I think we've managed to uh, you know, put together a really good show there, chaps. So thanks very much indeed. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram. And once again, let me say that our website this week will be particularly relevant given the Christmas gift guide. So that is gamersaboutglory.co.uk. If you like us, get onto those social medias, give us a follow, say hello, leave a review, subscribe, do all of that good stuff and keep us growing. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next week.